0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 9th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University, McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Now, some of you may have noticed that Twill has been on something of a hiatus this summer. I'm afraid other projects have intruded. However, going forward I will try and put out new episodes as newsworthy issues arise and as time allows. This episode recorded at the 2018 SEALS Conference. I was lucky enough to participate in some great sessions, compare notes with some of my favorite health law professors. Frankly, I forget whose idea it was, but four of us came together as a panel to discuss healthcare in the era of the Trump administration. I was joined by Nicole Huberfeld, Professor of Health Law, Ethics and Human Rights, Health Law, Policy and Management at Boston University School of Public Health, Zach Bach, Assistant Professor of Law and Wilkinson Jr., Research Professor at the University of Tennessee, and Jennifer Barr, Professor of Law in the College of Law at the University of Cincinnati, with a joint appointment in the Department of Internal Medicine at the College of Medicine there. She's currently a visiting scholar at the O'Neill Institute for Local and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law Center. Now, this was a panel, not a typical studio recording. Uh, so uh, to get the most out of it, you may wish to download our slides, the linked at twill.com. In this, the third part of our panel discussion, Zach Buck takes us through some of the financing and reimbursement issues that are currently in flux are developing under the Trump administration, particularly the so-called MACRA and MIPS issues, with also a quick dip into some Medicare reimbursement questions.
1: Thanks for being here. I'm going to continue the conversation uh, and turn it a little bit. Uh, I'm going to talk about two things most prominently today, and they're, they're not really related. So I'll bear with me and I'll try to introduce them and, and explain um, kind of why I'm going to touch on both of them. Uh, so first I'm going to talk about drug pricing regulation uh, and picking up on the theme that Nick and Nicole have highlighted and talk about where in our political sphere uh, the public is interested in an issue and how that is either translating into policy or not and why and what those policies are actually doing. Uh, and then I'm gonna talk about uh, Medicare financing uh, and what is changing in Medicare uh, and has changed over the last couple of years. And this is these are both projects that I've been working on. Drug pricing is a forthcoming piece that I'm, I'm still working on. The Medicare update is related to some work I've done in the past on MACRA. One of the things I think is important to highlight, and this- This kind of touches on what Nicole talked about, but flips it another way, is that when we're talking about regulating drug pricing, we're actually talking about, obviously the problem that we all know, but we're talking about the federal government retreating uh, in the space. And so when Nicole talks about states having power to operate, uh, to file waivers or to come up with their own policy solutions. You can also look at state solutions that might actually be good for cost effectiveness and maybe actually positive for health outcomes. And so I want to highlight that. We all know the problem uh, of pharmaceutical pricing. I could go through these charts all day long. You know, we're all on we're the biggest bar on every chart you see. We know about Heather Bresch, who's uh, the CEO of, of Mylan, uh, through the EpiPen uh, disaster uh, in 2016, which actually continues. Right, the price of EpiPens continue to be. Uh, astronomically high, uh, they went from $100 to $600 uh, in the period of about nine years, and they're still close to that rate today. This is after public outrage and congressional hearings, and the law has not changed. We know about Martin Shkreli and Daraprim. Uh, Turing Pharmaceuticals purchases a drug, and the price goes from $13 to $750. The really interesting things that I've kind of done in my reading on this topic is an article by Cleefa Siné in The New Yorker from 2016, which I thought hit it right on the head. And uh, he writes, when One of the strangest things about the anti-Skreli argument is that it asks us to be shocked that a medical executive is motivated by profit. A truly greedy executive would keep a much lower profile than Shkreli. There would be no headline grabbing exponential price hikes, just boring but reliable ticks upward, no interviews, no tweeting, and absolutely no hip-hop feuds. which was my favorite part. Um, By showing what is legal, he's helped us to think about what we might want to change and what we might need to learn to live with. I mean, obviously, the end of the story is that we continue to live with prices that are astronomically high in pharmaceutical drugs. There are a number of legal options for regulating uh, prescription drugs or pharmaceutical drugs. As I talked about, we've seen the federal government really retreat uh, in this space. Uh, The thing was, there wasn't really much federal action to begin with, even under the Obama administration. There was a prominent CMS pilot that was slated to start uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration and was canceled. Uh, And so now the the main action here is to look at the states. What are the states doing and how are they trying to address the problem? This project looks at, so just to to kind of forecast it, looks at a number of different uh, models that states seem to be following over the last handful of years in trying to address pharmaceutical pricing. Uh, And so I've broken out state action into five different categories to try to provide some kind of nomenclature for what states are doing and what actions actually seem to be working and which ones don't. The main thing to keep in mind is how do these state actions actually impact access? If it is the case that we are addressing the cost of pharmaceutical pricing in a certain uh, regulatory solution or pathway, are we negatively impacting access in some way? If states are concerned about their Medicaid budgets, are they cutting access to these drugs or are they doing something different that will try to bring down the price of the drugs? So there's a big difference difference between those two types of solutions so Five different types of categories that I've tried to come up with, and these are, again, this is a work in progress, so if you have ideas, I'm happy to hear them. Uh, state as funder, t- uh, caretaker, state as facilitator, state as participant, state as law enforcer, and state as price setter, which uh, is only one state that has currently failed so far. Um, but these are increasingly aggressive actions state can take. Uh, states can take to bring about cost uh, effectiveness in the space. So state as funder, caretaker, this is the lightest type of action, um, and by no means do I mean to say that states exclusively operate in these categories, many of them operate in multiple categories. I think it's helpful to kind of put them put words with with them in some way. Uh, States as funder caretakers are the most prominent. Basically, these are states that have Medicaid programs, which is every state. Uh, Primary goal is to provide public funding for healthcare delivery, which includes, of course, coverage for pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, States do this through both submerged and transparent means. These states who operate in this space most generally are comparatively unconcerned with price control. The goal here is just to provide access. It's up to the state to provide or to have discretion as to how much coverage and funding is provided but there's nothing implicit in the funding that does anything to try to bring down the cost of these drugs. So for examples, these are kind of the broad and kind of blunt tools that states employ to try to bring down the cost of healthcare. So prescription caps is a really good example here. The first in 1981 in New Hampshire. We've seen a new one in Illinois from 2017. It seems to be growing over the last couple of decades. These are laws that actually limit the amount of prescriptions that Medicaid beneficiaries can can get every month and it's done in the name of cost control. But of course, what does that do? It impacts access. It's not doing anything about the price of the drug itself, but it's impacting access for Medicaid beneficiaries. To link to what Nicole has been talking about, we can look at 1115 uh, Medicaid waivers as another kind of broad, blunt, draconian way of impacting the Medicaid budget by limiting the amount of people that you cover. If you can get people off the Medicaid rolls, then you will lower the cost of your Medicaid program. So states as funder caretakers really don't do much when it comes to the price of uh, pharmaceutical drugs. The second type of state and the category of state getting a little bit more aggressive and trying to bring down the cost of care is what I call status facilitator. So these are states that have passed laws over the last couple of years that try to encourage the functionality of the private marketplace in some way. For those of us who look at the financing of healthcare, we know that treating healthcare as a typical consumer good and trying to employ uh, consumer based tools is a difficult <laughs> proposition, to put it nicely. Um, And so most common here, you see states uh, proliferating price transparency laws. Nevada, California, Vermont, and Louisiana are four that I highlight here over just the last two years. But the ideas here are the states say, well, if we just broadcast or we make public what pharmaceutical companies are charging for their drugs or what the state is paying, then maybe that will impact some consumer along the way. Of course, the problem here is Consumers often don't have choice. They're operating in information asymmetry. All the problems that come with treating healthcare as a typical consumer, consumer good. Some states have actually required pharma companies to report to their state attorney general, like in Vermont, um, but the uh, prices have not been made publicized. Louisiana has a similar law on the books, and this is just four of the states, but there are many, many more states that have transparency laws on the books. Again, another example of states getting involved, trying to bring about some change in the pricing of pharmaceutical drugs but I would argue an ineffective tool for doing so. The third type of state, and probably the most interesting, um, where I think we're probably going to see quite a bit of action, is what I call a status participant. So here is where the state is actually acting as would a consumer and using its leverage in the marketplace to try to bring down the cost of drugs. Pressing for discounts or acting like a private insurer would. Um, Two states that have been really creative in this space are Massachusetts and New York. So Massachusetts filed a CMS waiver in in 2017 to try to ask CMS to allow it to install a closed formulary based on cost effectiveness so what Massachusetts was asking was can we in our Medicaid program can we approve certain drugs for our Medicaid population based on cost effectiveness and not allow certain drugs to be covered by Medicaid based solely on cost effectiveness CMS said no uh, they responded in the summer of 2018 to the waiver request just a couple of weeks ago and said no that's not something that you're uh, able Able to do. There was a lot of uh, hand-wringing and confusion about why it was a CMS said no, because there wasn't really a reason given. Uh, New York actually passed a law in 2017 that uh, established a prescription drug cost cap, which basically said if our Medicaid budget exceeds a certain rate for prescription drugs, that will trigger additional state action, which includes uh, empowering the state to seek additional rebates or canceling contracts that are in place uh, and imposing prior authorization, which pharma hates because right, the state is uh, imposing itself between uh, the doctor and the the patient. Um, it's not all unidirectional here. Ohio voters voted down a ballot initiative that would have mandated uh, Medicaid discounts that uh, match the VA. But there was a lot going on in Ohio uh, with this campaign. Eighty percent of voters uh, voted against it, uh, and it was a study in um, the effectiveness of negative political ads. I think this one I don't. I'm not really interested in, so I'm going to kind of skip. But this is the four. You need to have five. So here's the fourth. Um, <laughs> State, you know, What else could you do if you aren't a consumer, if you aren't imposing transparency laws, if you aren't just funding and saying we don't care, and if you're not setting prices? Well, you can try to use the legal levers available to you that exist in other realms, right? So like anti-fraud, consumer protection, maybe you step up fraud and abuse enforcement and you say, you know, if Martin Shkreli is selling drugs in our state, then he's committing fraud of some kind. This is harder to define. It's kind of nebulous. Uh, you can look at states that have put more money in their uh, fraud and abuse, or inspector general offices like Rhode Island did this year. Um, Mississippi has done similar things. So... That one I'm not as interested in, but if you have ideas, please bring it forth. And then probably the most interesting one, status price setter. The very most aggressive thing a state can do is to say, if you price your drug at X, that's illegal. So we've got Maryland, which passed the prohibition against price gouging for essential off-patent or generic drugs uh, in late 2017 over the inaction of Governor Hogan uh, through a veto-proof majority of the state legislature. Maryland argued that drugs that increase in price should... Be, should basically empower the attorney general of Maryland to go after the pharmaceutical companies because the price increases are unjustified and unconscionable. There were a number of protections built into the law. I mean, some. Uh, of course, it never really got off the ground, so we don't really know how they would've worked, but uh, it did require a notice uh, and uh, opportunity for the manufacturer to explain the, the, rate, the uh, increasing price. It took a lot of flack because there was no minimum threshold increase. The AG was empowered to go after or any price increase uh, that he or she saw fit. Uh, it also didn't as- address specialty drugs, which are, we know, incredibly expensive, and it limited its application to non-competitive marketplaces. So three or fewer manufacturers who were on the market. So most people who really are in, in the weeds on this say it really wouldn't have addressed the biggest, the most expensive drugs on the market, but at least it was a start. Well, it wasn't really a start because the Fourth Circuit panel uh, declared it unconstitutional and the petition for rehearing was just denied uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. So I want to talk about Maryland and Massachusetts uh, for a minute uh, and then move on. So a lot of attention on Maryland. A lot of really kind of interesting arguments as to whether Maryland was doing the right thing by using price gouging. It's kind of an interesting legal theory. Price gouging isn't typically seen as something that could be employed in the drug pricing context, but it has an intuitive appeal. There's some kind of connection between going after a gas station owner in the wake of a hurricane that's selling gas at $15 a gallon and going after the Martin Shkreli's of the world. And the reason why is because there's an underlying necessity, there's a brokenness of the marketplace, there's some kind of emergency, uh, consumers don't have any choice. I mean, when you start to kind of dig into it, you see how there is an intuitive appeal there. But branding it as a price gouging law made, made it difficult, I think, in some ways for Maryland to stand on it. Application in the healthcare market, it's difficult, right? Because... Stretching the word "gouging" to to this context is hard. Um, the emergency, typically in the anti-gouging context, is seen as time limited, time limited, or in the wake of some emergency. So, in in some ways, Maryland was declaring our drug pricing a national or state emergency, which I think a lot of people um, probably would agree with. Similarly, Massachusetts I thought was noteworthy because it allowed the state to negotiate prices downward. What's interesting about the differences between these two, and depending on if they provide models for states going forward, is what Maryland was trying to do was impact the price of drugs in the state for all beneficiaries so if you had private insurance or if you were on medicare if you were on medicaid in Maryland the price of drugs sold in Maryland were subject to that law Massachusetts through operating as a consumer would, a participant, as I highlighted, it, would only have impacted the Medicaid budget. So that's something that states are going to have to think about, right? Can we go after our, or can we focus our energies on Medicaid to try to shore up the kind of burning edge of health funding on the Medicaid program, or can we go bigger? Can we use the model of Maryland to try to provide a way forward? So why was the Maryland law struck down? Dormant commerce, which I looked to Nicole for. Um, so... The basic argument was that the Maryland law regulated transactions that took place completely outside of Maryland, because it basically said that a drug company that might sell their drug to a third-party intermediary before it makes its way into Maryland would have to price its drug in a different way for Maryland consumers than it would for other consumers. I'm not an expert on dormant commerce, but it seemed to me like it was a strained application of the dormant commerce clause. It was over a vigorous dissent. The panel decision was two to one. Uh, The rehearing was denied um, because the law actually did say drugs made for sale uh, in Maryland. But the court read that to say that the uh, connection between the sale in Maryland and the sale out of state was too attenuated. that There wasn't a clear linkage between those two actions. So Maryland's law went down. Um, And I've actually had the opportunity to talk to people uh, in the uh, AG's office in Maryland um, about um, what they're going to do next. And they didn't know that this would be a, uh, a legal um, issue going forward. And they thought that the way that the, that the law was actually drafted um, protected it from a dormant, dormant commerce clause attack. So they were surprised by the Fourth Circuit. Massachusetts, as I mentioned, late June had its formulary uh, proposal denied. Where does that leave us? Well, We don't know if states can be price setters because we don't know about dormant commerce or if you could draft a law that would come, I think there are ways you could do it where you would be uh, in um, probably more firm ground or on more firm ground than Maryland was. Um, states as participants have to be careful. Again, as Nicole mentioned, they still have to go through the waiver process if they want to try to change the way that their Medicaid programs pay for prescription drugs. And it's unknown whether or not CMS truly values cost effectiveness for prescription drugs in Medicaid or not. And whether or not CMS does care about it is going to be determinative on that front. The other solutions seem to not really lend us a lot of leeway or a potential leeway here as well. Um, and so we're kind of left to see where the next thing, uh, where, the, where the next state goes. So I've got a couple minutes, final piece here, and this is totally changing gears, but because no one talked about Medicare, what's going on in Medicare? Medicare is in the midst of a major change for how it pays physicians uh, through the MACRA program, which was installed in 2015, and the, the MIPS program, which is part of MACRA, and then I'm going to touch on briefly the um, prospective payment uh, system changes that were just uh, proposed. So starting with MACRA, most of us know about it, but I think it's always important to highlight it because it's kind of in the weeds and it's kind kind of dry and but it's really important, um, right? Uh, so it replaced the SGR, which we all hated, which was terrible, which required a doc fix every year. What it did writ large was it changed the funding right? Under the SGR we said if, if you all doctors exceed the budget then we'll reduce you globally going forward next year. What MACRA does is it compares you individually against your peers. So if you're not cost effective, if you're not producing quality, if you're not um, following or scoring well on data points you're going to have your reimbursement reduced yourself. It's not about the global budget. And so I think that was a big, big change that was positive. Passed in 2015, a lot of bipartisan support. It mandates budget neutrality. So every year, if some physicians go up because they scored really well, other ones have to go down. The question now is, it doesn't seem like Congress is touching it, but it seems like the agency is really touching it. Um, And particularly when it comes to MIPS. So MIPS is the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. It's part of MACRA, and it's how physicians get paid. You can either be in an alternative payment model, an APM, or you are mandatorily enrolled in MIPS. And that is the current state of the world today, even though a lot of physicians do not know that they're actually subject to it. Way back in 2015, CMS estimated that about 90% of providers would be placed in MIPS because of the, the enrollment in advanced uh, alternative uh, payment models was low. These APMs include MSSP or um, ACOs or other payment centered or patient-centered medical homes. So MACRA establishes this dual track. You can either be uh, in an APM or you're subject to MIPS. If you're in an APM, you're already part of an ACO or a medical home or bundled payments if you're in MIPS you're scored on four different metrics cost improvement activities quality and advancing care information which is another name for meaningful use how macro works is that there's a performance year and then our MIPS works I guess you could say is there's a performance year and then that impacts your payment two years down the line so performance period 2017 impacts payment adjustment for 2019 we're currently in performance year 2018 and we're looking about are looking at payment 2020 other timeline. As MIPS gets implemented, the amount that a provider can have their, uh, their reimbursement increased or decreased widens. And so it becomes more and more imperative that providers are paying attention uh, here. But as we've all talked about, you know, I, I taught a health law class this past fall and I went in at 9 a.m. and I said, CSRs exist. And by 946, there was a tweet. And one of the students said, no, they don't. And I was, you know, how do you teach that? What is a tweet, right? <laughs> is a tweet law? I don't know. I, this is way beyond what I signed up for, right? <laughs> you know, five years ago when I... If I'd known... Um, no. So... Anyway, thats all this is all you know, this is from like 10 months ago, but it's probably wrong. So you know, you can get the visual, but CMS is probably going to change it. So CMS is blowing all sorts of holes in MIPS. They're making it really easy for providers to get out from under it. They're rising, They're raising the low volume threshold. They're making exceptions left and right. They're boosting rural providers. They're boosting complex people are providers who treat complex patients. And so we don't know exactly what it is that CMS wants. Everything you read from Seema Verma is that she wants to help providers get out from under the bureaucratic paperwork that is required, and that the draconian data requirements are just too hard for physicians. MedPAC came out in March of 2018 and said, we don't really like MIPS either. Let's get rid of it, Um, and let's replace it with the Voluntary Value Program. Well, the whole point of MIPS was it was mandatory, right? The only way... (laughs) Right? The only way we are going to bend the cost curve or slow it is mandatory uh, enrollment for physicians. MedPack had a whole sort uh, of reasons as to why that was. Um, So now we've seen a proposed rule, Commons Close uh, in September, that codifies these changes. Uh, Exemptions continue. I didn't even touch on this, but one of the big things that CMS did last year was it really widened the exemptions so that if you were a provider who saw uh, less than uh, 200 Medicare patients you were exempt instead of just 100, or less than 90,000 instead of just 30,000. Um, fewer enrollees is the result, smaller incentives, so that chart I showed you that it was 7% by 2020 where you could impact up or down is now Likely to be as small as two percent. CMS is really pushing those numbers together, uh, and so the incentive payments could drop from as much as 833 million in 2019, which by the way is already set by performance 2017, down to 118 million in 2020. The result: maybe only 42% of Medicare participating uh, providers will be enrolled in MIPS. Hard to believe that it's that small. When initially MACRO was passed, it was as high as 90%. Second proposed rule is outpatient. Short story here is uh, CMS's team sinkering with the rules for paying off-campus uh, hospitals and clinics, this might really change the way healthcare is delivered, right? Hospitals are moving outpatient, right? We've seen that. Go to the clinic, right? Facility fees, etc. cetera. CMS is thinking about changing it and moving toward a site-neutral payment model, which I think in many ways might be a positive step. But we can talk about that. So I'll stop there. Thanks.
0: And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to uh, Professors Huberfeld, Bach, and Bard for joining me. You can find Professor Huberfeld on Twitter at nhuberfeld1, and Jennifer Bard is at profbardlaw. The panel was great fun. We hope that you enjoy it. Uh, Recall that the show notes are at tour.com, where you can download our slide sets. I'm Nicholas Terry. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining me. Have a legally interesting but healthy week.